0: Welcome to the last episode of ASPE's Policy, Guns and Money podcast for 2022. I'm David Rowe. This week, we are going nuclear. Aspie's Alex Bristow speaks with Australia's Ambassador for Arms Control and Counterproliferation, Ian Biggs, as well as Scott Rucker and Jessica Bufford from the Nuclear Threat Initiative, the world's foremost organisation working to reduce nuclear risks. Together they discuss nuclear security, the status of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, nuclear disarmament, gender diversity and inclusivity in nuclear issues, and Australia's role in arms control.
1: Well, welcome to ASPE, Scott, Jessica and Ian. Uh, Our discussion today is going to be about uh, nuclear security. I wanted to start off in a, an area that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves and just bear with me with a second as i introduce this so I, i'm a big fan of the the musical hamilton i don't know if you're familiar with it there's a, a scene in there where one of the characters actually i think it's the main character alexander hamilton says he wants to be in the room where it happens uh, actually maybe it's one of the other characters but the the metaphor i think is significant to what we're going to discuss which is inclusivity in uh nuclear security and the women peace and security agenda Are there women in the room where it happens in uh, in these issues? And what can we do to get more women and more inclusivity in this uh, important area of international policy?
2: Yes. So there are women in the room where it happens, but there needs to be more. NTI actually have a program focused on this uh, in partnership with the Plowshares Foundation called Gender Champions in Nuclear Policy. And it focuses very much on that, getting diverse voices around the table, uh, making the decisions. There's tons of data out there that prove that when you have diverse voices around the table making decisions, the decisions are better, they're more durable. And so this is one of our efforts to try to increase that. Fantastic. Can you give a few examples perhaps of some practical
1: things that that we can be doing perhaps as uh, think tanks or uh, non-governmental organisations or even as countries? Ian, you're obviously here representing Australia. What are the practical things we need to be focusing
2: on to push this forward? So the primary pledge as part of the, the GCNP program, as we call it, um, is to have panel parity. So we've got that right here today where we don't have one single gender represented on a panel or in a discussion like we're having today. So that's a fairly easy thing to do, but unfortunately doesn't happen that often. So that's one area very practically that gender champs, uh, commit to do. Um, but then a lot of it really depends on your organization and what kind of commitments you see that need to happen in terms of making sure that your hiring processes are blind to, you know, background and different education levels and, and that level. So, uh, there's a lot of diversity in terms of uh, options for increasing, uh, you know, voices around the table.
1: Excellent. Well, I know we. one of my colleagues uses the term manual to describe a panel which is uh, solely male. I'm sure she didn't coin the term, but I think it is a, a catchy one. And it's a shame that um, my, my colleague, Beck Shrimpson, isn't here too, to lead the discussion today. She's got COVID, so uh, otherwise we'd have an even more uh, – don't worry, I haven't seen her for a few days. She's in <laughs> Melbourne, but otherwise we'd have an even more diverse panel. But just, just staying on the, the agenda of uh, Women, Peace and Security – I know that in other areas, uh, it's not just uh, inclusivity in the decision-making room, but it, it's also that women can sometimes be disproportionately affected by uh, certain outcomes in, in areas of international policy. Obviously, uh, women in conflict can be particularly vulnerable. Is there any area of uh, nuclear safety is there a, or, or security that where, where this is pertinent as well?
3: Certainly, I think there's a lot of relevance to that. And as a woman in these rooms, uh, I've been very encouraged by how much growth i've seen in terms of the inclusivity in these dialogues when you think about the effects of nuclear weapons uh, it certainly impacts women's bodies differently than, than men's bodies and then through that impacts future generations and when we look at not a nuclear event but the global pandemic the impact on women has been disproportionate to men and would anticipate something similar were a nuclear disaster to happen. Um, So keeping that in mind as to the audiences and, and the peoples that are impacted by our decisions is really important. And just to your earlier question about how do you encourage greater diversity and inclusivity, there's a role for both women and men to play in this. I personally have benefited greatly from fantastic female mentors uh, who have encouraged me and given me advice as to how to think about my role in these spaces. But I also have been incredibly supported by men as bosses and as colleagues who have given me advice and, and helped me progress in my career to where I am today.
1: That's an excellent segue to uh, something that Aspie feels very passionately about. And I know she'll be embarrassed when I mention her name, but my colleague, Olivia Nelson, um, runs our Women in Defence and Security Network here at Aspie, which is going from strength to strength, providing those mentoring facilities. And as you say, I think it's it's important that both women and men are, are being positive mentors in this way. Um, Ian, I wonder if I could bring you into this discussion as well. You've been in... Um, New York recently, uh, a few months ago for the review conference, I believe that um, some of these issues are, are part of the agenda that Australia is, is putting forward, positive agenda on, on is there anything you want to sort of pick up on in, in, in what Australia's doing in this well, space? Well, I, I, I should refer to the
4: National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security. We have since the second iteration and, and making serious effort. And one of the achievements of this year's review conference for the NPT was inclusion of language on gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, remarkable. And made it through in the consensus minus one final outcome of the NPT review conference. Can, can Australia count that as, as, a, as a tick on the score sheet for well, Australian I, efforts? Or, I, uh, I hope so. Okay. I hope so, and it would also be irresponsible of me not to mention the effort that we're making on inclusivity of other sorts, and and the Australia's effort uh, in every context to bring a, a First Nations perspective to to our foreign policy, to a to our nuclear policy. Um, the representation of of First Nations interests in international fora is is something we we need to do in the nuclear context especially working with neighbors in the pacific the uh, questions around nuclear testing legacy and around an attempt to uh, to speak on behalf of populations excluded from much of the policy making yes we take inclusivity very seriously
1: well i mean i, I would anticipate and i as you can tell i am a brit by my accent i would anticipate the british nuclear tests in in south australia had a disproportionate effect on uh, some of the First Nation community that live in South Australia. How does the Australian government
4: support those communities? There was testing at Maralinga from 1952 to 63. It's, a, it's an extensive legacy. Uh, a great deal of effort has been undertaken by, by both governments, Australian and British, to on the, the clear-up and compensation. It's taught us some serious lessons about responsible management of the environment and nuclear safety and security, all that much more relevant because of of that experience in the Pacific, within Marshall Islands and and French Polynesia and elsewhere, it has become one of the primary concerns. We have attempted to address that through our participation in the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone, uh, with some some really strong commitments with international uh, compliance uh, to keep. Uh, nuclear pollution and and nuclear testing out of out of our region yes
1: can i just stay on that just for a second uh i mean i uh obviously the 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 testing in the um the south pacific has thankfully ended now but there is still a legacy as you've said but um amongst some of the other countries that have conducted nuclear testing in the past uh obviously china in in xinjiang province um, I think uh, the Soviet Union did most of its testing in Kazakhstan. Is that accurate? Is it? Is there any, any sort of equivalent international action being taken to help some of
4: those communities, where there's there's a lasting health
1: and ecological effects? Uh,
4: the the International Atomic Energy Agency has programs, but the most important work there is is that of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, where uh, under Australian leadership now, with Rob Floyd as uh, Executive Secretary, it's getting close to a global consensus against nuclear testing so that this doesn't happen again. Um, the only uh, cloud on the horizon there is is from North Korea, from DPRK, where um, preparations have been observed that look as though they're heading to further nuclear testing and there's a great deal of international effort, including from Australia, to try and head that off.
1: Right, well, I feel like uh, all conversations of nuclear security probably regressed to North Korea at some point. We've hit it quite quickly. But um, maybe we can sort of pull back the lens a little bit and um, focus a little bit more on the on the work of NTI because we uh, have two guests here from NTI today. I don't think many of our listeners will necessarily immediately know what NTI does. Uh, so uh, could you please explain the, the the role that NTI play in nuclear security and maybe in the context of what are the implications of the global, what's going on in the global security environment for nuclear arms control?
2: Yeah, so we're, we're based in Washington, D.C. We've been around for a little bit more than 20 years. We were established by Ted Turner, who founded CNN, as well as Senator Sam Nunn, who was one of the uh, founders of the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, uh, which was the United States program focused on uh, trying to improve nuclear security in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And so our Beginnings really kind of just describe what we do today. We're very much focused on actionable solutions. Um, we're not a think tank where we just write a lot of papers and tell people what to do. We're out there trying to make this change happen um, and, and create systematic, catalytic change uh, for the better on nuclear security and, and non-proliferation. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of attention on this topic since February 24th. I think people understand that nuclear security is and nuclear issues are still a very uh, significant risk and threat in this world, and you've really given us an opportunity to describe nuclear security in a different way. You see it very differently when you're watching, you know, uh, artillery fight right with uh, you know cooling towers right in the background uh, with the largest you know nuclear power plant in all of Europe. Um, so it's a it's a very important time for us, and something that we're we're seeking to try to uh, make some real positive improvements on nuclear security and the norms around uh, nuclear security, given what's been happening in Ukraine. What's going on in Ukraine
1: is genuinely frightening. When I looked at some of the background of NTI, it appeared that the origin of the institution was primarily around uh, nuclear material, preventing nuclear material falling into the hands of terrorists. Am I correct on that? I mean, has the nature of the threats changed now that we have? Things like what's going on in Ukraine happening in front of us. Has so the focus of NTI shifted a little bit?
2: Yes. Yeah, I think we did have that initial focus sort of on on preventing a, an act of nuclear terrorism. And that continues to this day. Um, but obviously what's been happening over the last uh, year really has sort of shined a light on nuclear nonproliferation, which has been a focus of NTIs over the decades as well. We're very concerned about sort of accidental use of nuclear weapons with, you know, lack of information and the fact that one person has their finger essentially on the button. So there has been a lot of focus on sort of nuclear doctrine and how it needs to be updated uh, to reflect the current situation and not sort of this Cold War mentality where, you know, two superpowers are staring at each other, you know, wondering who's going to pull the trigger first.
3: I think people are frequently surprised to hear that there's a nonprofit working in the nuclear security space. Uh and yet there's a lot of work to be done that can be done by civil society. Uh so one of the things that I like to characterize NTI's work as is putting smart people in small rooms to talk about big issues. And we can think creatively and analytically uh with a certain amount of intellectual freedom. That is difficult for governments to engage in as as they follow policies that are rightly set by government. And so what we do is bring government representatives into rooms where they can walk away from their talking points and speak personally uh, and share their thoughts and concerns and creative ideas with a, a broader community. And then we can brainstorm good ways to help improve security around the world in the future. And in addition to uh, dealing with nonproliferation issues, we have a team that works on bio health and security, and they've been very busy in the last couple of years, uh, but really have done some tremendous work in terms of building consensus around what standards are for bio health security and pandemic preparedness.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, uh, the way you described it, I think putting putting smart people in small rooms is that the, that's an excellent way of describing uh, the value that think tanks and, and NGOs can play in this space. I think Aspie likes to think we, we sometimes do similar things. Um, Ian, just to remind you, uh, this is going to be broadcast. So this isn't one of those small rooms where you can take off your Australia hat and just say what you think, but hopefully a level of candor, but, but still uh, sticking to the talking points on this occasion to a certain degree. But, um, that's a really excellent summary. One of the products that's, that's grabbed my attention is your uh, Nuclear Security Index. And I wondered if you might sort of just briefly explain to our, our listeners what the index is and how it's being used to strengthen nuclear security in this region and around the world.
2: Yeah, so the Nuclear Security Index is a, a product that NTI launched in 2012 uh, in conjunction with the Nuclear Security Summit process that was happening at the same time. Um, and it really is uh, meant to assess the conditions in a country that would support strong nuclear security practices so this is based completely off open source information we've got researchers working in countries around the globe look at regulations look at a wide range of information in that country to assess the conditions for strong nuclear security practices and so we've got uh, five editions that have been out thus far Uh, the next one is going to be coming out in mid 2023 and, you know, Australia has done quite well, uh, number one, top of the list, uh, based on all the great practices that are here. Um, it takes into account the amount of nuclear material. It takes into account the threat environment in a country. It takes into account, you know, the the practices that countries have made, but also the commitments that they're making in international forum, like the International Atomic Energy Agency. And so it, all of those numbers are put together, and we come up with this score. And uh, you'll have to tune in again mid-2023 to see where Australia lands.
1: You heard it here first. Uh, All these people who are worried about um, Australia and proliferation risk and such, uh, they're top of the table for nuclear security.
3: Uh, Well, and and one of the really cool aspects of the nuclear security index is because it's produced in open source, anyone can use it and anyone can talk about it. Uh, So it's a resource available for academia and researchers, but equally it's a resource available for governments to have conversations with their neighbors, with their counterparts, and talk about how to improve nuclear security uh, in a region. And they're able to point to it without compromising classified information or other secrecy concerns because it's all open source. So it's a really versatile tool that can fuel a lot of positive conversations.
2: That's a really important point, because the index will include recommendations for countries on steps that they can make to improve their score and therefore their nuclear security. Excellent. Well, I'm sure you
1: never leave home without a copy of it tucked under your arm, uh, uh, particularly because Australia's top of the table. But given that there are these concerns in the international arena around the, I am going to excuse the pun, I'm going to drop the the A-bomb and and mention AUKUS, Um, (laughs) given that um, there there are these concerns, how does that relate to Australia's position at the top of the table? Does that sort of get captured at all in in what you're looking at?
2: So it won't be caught up in this next edition. So it's really uh, meant to focus on the nuclear materials that are in the country. So as there's not been any transfer of nuclear materials to Australia yet as part of AUKUS, um, that won't factor into the the next edition. But certainly will be something that comes into effect at some point in the future.
4: But I really should intervene to reassure everyone that the regulatory arrangements around the AUKUS project uh, will keep our place. I,
1: I, was, I was I was goading you with that one, Ian. I'm sorry. The, uh, I, I should hasten to add that if uh, if people are looking for a ready a summary of what some of those safeguards are, the regime that Australia is putting down, uh, there is the official documentation. There's also the ASPE AUKUS update from uh, the one year mark 30. after the uh, after the announcement, so that came out sort of September. This year, and I think we, well, hopefully we make an accurate summary of the safeguard regime that Australia is proposing alongside yeah. the other AUKUS partners. I think there's a useful working paper that the three countries submitted in the yes. ahead of the RevCon that, that goes cor- into more detail. Cor- correct.
4: Among the assurances that we've been able to provide that there's, there will be no enrichment or reprocessing um, or, or, or fuel fabrication for the reactors for the Australian nuclear powered submarine program. Uh, there will certainly be no uh, nuclear weapons development. We have engaged very closely with the International Atomic Energy Agency to to verify that, to to put in place the arrangements to make sure that um, non-proliferation credentials remain as important as they have been since 1970 and the, um, the creation of the NPT regime.
1: Well, I think we should definitely return to that um uh, later. Some of Australia's work supporting the NPT regime and and it. it the history that australia has in that space i just wanted to stay on the uh, nuclear security index for a little bit longer apologies that will sidetrack onto orcas i couldn't help myself <laughs> but um the index so is overall i was reading your executive summary it looks like there has been some decent progress since the index got going was it 2012 the first correct index? yep um and the number of states that have Small quantities or or large quantities, but any quantity of weapons grade materials has has gone down during that period of time. So that's a reassuring message. But the, the executive summary had some cautionary notes that some of that progress is stalling. Is there anything that's worth sort of bringing out? For the, the attention of our listeners, what, what should we be concerned about what's going wrong?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's more of a matter of focus, I think, at this point, in, in term, instead of something that's going wrong. Um, there was a lot of attention on nuclear security through the Nuclear Security Summit process that was, you know, from 2010 to 2016. There were four summits in all. And in that process, you saw a lot of progress, countries wanting to come to these events where you've got heads of states um, to announce really important commitments and accomplishments that they were making on nuclear security. And so you know, once that process ended, uh, there was less of a political impetus for some of these difficult projects and so I think we 've seen um, over the course of the last few years sort of a slowing of attention and priority on these projects and so that I think is similar, and we'll we'll have a, a similar tale to tell in the next edition of it. but certainly also what 's been happening in Ukraine with russia 's invasion and targeting of multiple nuclear facilities in that country is another destabilizing trend that we're looking at on nuclear security and uh, erosion of international norms that we didn't think would be eroded any time uh, in our lifetime, but we're facing that today. So that's going to be another factor as we look at the next edition.
1: Yes, Russia's behavior is, uh, is genuinely concerning, isn't it? Is, is there any hope of, of Russia sort of coming to the table and doing anything practical anytime soon?
2: Uh, all the reports that I have seen indicate no willingness to have that kind of concrete, productive conversation at this point. We might return to that, uh, Ian, if we if we get, have,
1: to have time yes. to discuss the review conference uh, and, and Russia's conduct there as well. But while we're staying on the the index, um, maybe just beyond the, the, the scope of the index itself, but uh, I guess the, the impression I get from the international environment, our strategic environment, is that it's, There's a lot of uh, competition between the nuclear armed states going on and very little prospect of progress on disarmament that I can see. Um, I was leafing through a recent publication from the Department of Defense, the US Department of Defense, I should say, a a report to Congress on the uh, military and security developments of the PRC, uh, which would seem to indicate that the, the Chinese are building a a nuclear warhead every few days. I think they're going to have an extra thousand or so potentially deployed by about 2035. I think we're getting up to levels that would be equivalent to where Russia and the US probably are today. Is there any hope for nuclear disarmament?
3: It's certainly a challenging time for nuclear disarmament. And as you see the vertical proliferation that China is engaging in, it makes the prospects for, uh, future disarmament action dimmer and, and more challenging because that's more warheads that have to be dismantled in the future. And it's, it's also concerning that China hasn't indicated what its target is for, uh, stockpile growth. It hasn't indicated a, a cap that it's working towards. And it historically has not been interested in arms controls discussions. Uh, there's that lack of historic engagement on strategic stability that we see in the U.S. and Russia. So that's the concerning side. And yet, there is tremendous support for progress towards a world without nuclear weapons. And certainly, we see a lot of pressure building on nuclear weapons states. So though the outlook right now may seem bleak for nuclear disarmament, there are bright spots of, of hope and opportunity. Uh, so Scott and I are in Australia, in part to participate in the International Partnership for Disarmament Verification. That was a a project that consists of 25 different countries working together to tackle the questions of how could we verify nuclear disarmament uh, in a way that's transparent and provides assurances while also protecting confidential information. And what this partnership has demonstrated is that these are tough questions. But they are solvable, and they can be tackled by nuclear weapon states as well as non-nuclear weapon states. So what we're doing is is building the technical uh, capabilities and the competency of the, of people uh, to engage in these kinds of activities in anticipation and in hope of a future date when arms control negotiations resume and as we can make concrete steps towards disarmament.
4: And it should be said that there have been periods of real progress on disarmament and the stockpiles of of the nuclear weapon states now are a small fraction of what they were at the end of the Cold War. So progress is possible. We need to be ready technically and politically to move when that opportunity comes.
1: It was pointed out to me by an, another thinker in this in this space that um, some of the progress that was made during the Cold War on arms control was was achieved hardly achieved in a sort of a benign strategic environment. So so it is possible perhaps to uh, to make progress and to have dialogue uh, even in the least likely strategic circumstances.
4: Even this year, 2022, the five nuclear weapon states under the NPT were able to agree that nuclear war would never be won and must never be fought and that awareness remains even in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the destabilizing that that's responsible for.
1: Never give up hope. Uh, uh, so um, the uh, acronym for the conference you just described, IPNDV, is, is that correct? So that you mentioned that's got quite a lot of countries uh, around the table, at over 20? 20,
3: over 25. Over 25. Yeah. and And what's important is there are representatives from nuclear weapon states as well as representatives from non-nuclear weapon states. Uh, so we're really digging into the question of how can you verify the dismantlement of a nuclear warhead while maintaining NPT obligations to not share sensitive information? And it's been a really useful process to go through to help partners understand this concerns from non-nuclear weapon states and nuclear weapon states and exchange information about how would you go about this kind of exercise we've done visits to decommissioned nuclear weapons sites we've done visits to uh, laboratories where we've used radiation detection capabilities to understand okay how would these technologies actually play out in a theoretical verification regime and we're talking through what are some of the challenges to building confidence in countries that are non-nuclear weapon states, watching nuclear weapon states disarm? And how do you provide assurances to nuclear weapon states that they're able to do it in a way that doesn't spread proliferant information? Uh, so it's, it's a really challenging problem set, but it's also really exciting because there's a lot of good work to be done uh, and opportunities to keep moving us towards that future that we all desire
1: within those, those over 25 countries, do you have all the, the players that you need
3: at the table or are there some nuclear weapon states that are not turning up? We have great participation from the United States, the UK and France. Um, obviously, engagement with Russia is is quite difficult right now, as, as is China. Um, and we are looking into ways to engage uh, nuclear possessor states, uh, including India and Pakistan. So I think IPNDV proves that you can make progress on big puzzles by breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. We've been able to make good progress without all of the parties at the table. But ultimately, we will need buy-in from all of those nuclear weapons-possessing states uh, in order to move further down that road.
1: Absolutely. I think we sometimes lose sight. Well, my sense is that we sometimes lose sight in the debate of the importance of some of these nuclear possessor states. You know, the ongoing um, difficulties in the relationship between Pakistan and India have historically Seemingly come close to a point where where nuclear weapons could be used, and we we mustn't lose sight of that. So excellent that you're making steps to engage them uh, as as well, Scott. I was looking for your CV, and you've got a bit of a a background advising on issues relating to Iran. Not currently, at least to the best of my knowledge, a nuclear possessor state, but according to some sources, has aspirations in that regard. Is there anything? The novel that's worth saying about Iran and, and any concerns or what, what, what can the international community be doing, including the, the NGO space on Iran at the moment?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, especially in light of the fact that the talks for a uh, return to compliance with JCPOA seem essentially dead at this point. I mean, never give up hope, but there's no current sign that uh, there'll be a breakthrough anytime soon. So what else can be done? Um, yeah, there's some questions around that. And, and one of the big concerns is the amount of uh, highly enriched uranium that's being produced in Iran today, right? Now they're, they're enriching up to 60%. Um, the distance between 60% enriched uranium to 90%, which is considered weapons grade, is there's not very much work that needs to be done to get to that point. Um, so we're looking at a much more dangerous situation than we did before the JCPOA in terms of the amount of nuclear material that Iran has, as well as the knowledge that they've gained um, since the U.S. Uh, left that agreement um, in 2018. So the list of options of things to do, are, it's relatively limited. Um, but one thing that we're looking at is how can we think about regional approaches to try to address some of these concerns, right? Developing in the Middle East uh, a, a regional enrichment capability could go a long way in terms of giving confidence to the other countries in the region that they're not trying to pursue nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons program under the guise of civil nuclear power. So there's tough questions at play, and uh, the Middle East is a really important region for this. And so finding the best examples of how to do nuclear power in a way that's you know consistent with safeguards and nonproliferation standards is really important at this time.
1: And if you don't mind, I'm also picking up another part of your CV. You've done some work on removing HEU from certain uh, facilities in Japan. Uh, sometimes here, discussion here of this concept of nuclear latency, often in, in relation to South Korea or Japan, that it would be possible for them if they ever took the decision to, to have facilities on hand to develop nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, I, I was actually interested that, that it looks like there's been a, a efforts to remove HEU from Japan in the past, Is is this in in any way an informative debate,
2: this one around nuclear latency, or are are we misunderstanding the situation? So that's more of a focus on nuclear security and, you know, a a terrorist or a non-state actor acquiring nuclear material that they could make a nuclear weapon with. Um, So that's the, the primary focus of the work that has been done. And it's essentially, you know, you've got this really attractive material located in research facilities and security isn't always perfect, right? And so the best way to reduce that risk is to eliminate that material altogether. And so as a part of the Nuclear Security Summit process, as we were talking about earlier, uh, Japan did make that commitment to remove some very highly attractive uh, nuclear material uh, that's actually being disposed of now in the United States. So being taken from the high enriched uranium uh, form that could be used in a nuclear weapon to a low enriched uranium form that can't be used in a nuclear weapon. And so that's really been sort of the focus of uh, the HE minimization work that's happened in that country.
4: But it should also be said that Japan has been a leader in disarmament and non-proliferation efforts for a very long time, including the current project of an eminent persons group founded by Prime Minister Kishida just this year. So meeting, I think, this month for the first time.
1: Well, I, I think, um, uh, Ian, let's bring you a little bit more to the forefront of the discussion. So drawing back the lens a little bit to what looks looks like a dreadful Strategic environment for for progress on nonproliferation. Uh, you you've been, as I said before, you've been to New York recently to the review conference of the of the NPT. I think widely dismissed by many people as a struggling format, a struggling treaty, a failure. Is this accurate? Do you see any future for the treaty? Do you think it, it, that that conference was a failure, or, or are we missing the uh, the wood for the trees here?
4: I spent most of the whole of, of the month of August this year at the MPT Review Conference in New York, but I've also been to 34 other capitals this year pushing the non-proliferation message and Australia's commitment to it, and I would have to say that there is more consensus around non-proliferation and the dangers of, of proliferation than than there has been for a long time, and and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has something to do with that. People have been reminded just how incredibly dangerous uh, the current situation will be, uh, and and so at the NPT review conference, not a single country suggested that that they were prepared to abandon the NPT or that there was any backing away from the uh, commitments to non-proliferation and disarmament in the NPT. We ended up with fairly hard-fought. Document that achieved consensus minus one. Russia was not able to join the um, the outcome document because of language around around Ukraine and and especially around Zaporizhia. Uh, but uh, consensus minus one is not a bad place to be in something as complicated as nuclear policy. That uh, that consensus covered every aspect of, of peaceful uses of nuclear energy and nuclear safety and security and the and the safeguards arrangements that um that will get us to a point of stability and eventual disarmament so no i i i wouldn't i wouldn't be despondent about the future of the n p t regime
1: so hold the press. So Russia, obviously a spoiler there, preventing consensus, but China must have been, uh, must have been cooperating to a certain degree. Um, I, Jessica, I was, I was looking for your, you can tell I like looking at bios while I'm doing uh, interviews. You, you've worked with China on, on nuclear security issues. So it is possible to make progress with China, and there's a lot of secrecy around their, their own nuclear weapons program.
3: Certainly on nuclear security, the Chinese seem very eager to engage uh, in dialogue. Uh, now, one important thing to note, when we commonly talk about nuclear security uh, as experts, we're talking about security of civilian materials. And that's true across the, the nuclear weapons states. So the Chinese are eager to talk about security of nuclear materials in civilian use. Um, we actually, uh, NTI has a track two dialogue with uh, our counterparts at the China Arms Control and Disarmament Association. Um, where we've been able to have really substantive, robust conversations about uh, perceptions of the state of nuclear security, various projects that we're doing independently, uh, work that they're doing at their center of excellence. And they've been very good conversations, especially given that they've only taken place online. Um, so there is areas of cooperation amongst uh, these, these various hotspots. Uh, where we can continue to, to have good conversation and find areas, perhaps not of collaboration, but at least mutual effort to move towards the same goal.
2: And that's really important in these these times to maintain those conversations. And so Jessica mentioned the, the great conversation we're having with China, but we're also maintaining dialogue with our track two partners in Russia. Uh, we had a, a, a conversation in May where we were talking about coordinating policies on JCPOA, on North Korea, on the upcoming NPT review conference, as well as the P5 statement earlier this year that a nuclear war could never be won, so it should never be fought. So um, we at NTI, I think it's important to maintain these discussions in the different difficult times so that we have that once we get through the crisis and, and back to hopefully working together you can never have
1: too much dialogue and a good uh, correction to my um sloppy uh association of military and civilian uses there i'm fast learning the importance of the lexicon in this space the differences between counter and non-proliferation and all these 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 uh nuances um and i i think uh, there's probably a, a a whole host of people with me who are restoring some of this muscle memory that would have been quite common i guess during the cold war but many of our institutions uh, our, our think tanks our governments probably just don't this isn't second nature in the way that it used to be so we're all learning again which is good We've probably only got time for one last question. I'm going to throw a completely unfair one into the air. And There is, um, I guess, an alternative approach to disarmament that's being put forward by a group of states, uh, including uh, New Zealand, uh, local to us, um, the uh, Treaty for the uh, Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. I know you're probably going to have to take the fifth on this, Ian, because your, your government is, uh, I think, uh, presently uh, abstaining from certain processes and and, uh, and and reviewing its its own position on, on this treaty. But... Um, Is there anything that's worth sort of bringing out in this debate now about where does TPNW sits alongside other longstanding efforts at disarmament?
2: I mean, I think the TPNW is really an expression of the frustration from non-possessor states in the progress on disarmament, right? There's been, um, you know, there's a, there's a deal in place, uh, it's outlined in the NPT, and there's a strong feeling that the nuclear weapon states are not living up to their part of the bargain. And so I think that's where the TPNW has come from. That's an expression of that frustration. And I think it's incumbent upon nuclear weapon states to take tangible steps toward disarmament to address those concerns.
3: I think one of the real challenges with the TPNW is understanding how it intersects with the NPT regime um and i think there's still a lot of work to be done to coordinate or harmonize those two regimes intersecting with each other and i think it's putting forward a a useful vision of a world without nuclear weapons and i think there's really good work being done on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons but i think there's obviously concerns about the fact that none of the nuclear weapon states or nuclear possessor states are part of that regime you know how how do you move forward on that basis and The challenge is finding that middle ground of progress on disarmament, as Scott mentioned, the nuclear weapon states living up to their obligations under the NPT, while also recognizing it's a complicated and difficult process that won't happen overnight and will require cooperation at an incredibly broad scale in order to realize a world without nuclear weapons.
1: Excellent point on that. I will give you a chance to speak And Having said your point on the fifth, I know you want to talk, but excellent point on the parallel regimes in the, the NPT and the TPNW. To, to, me, and I'm not an expert on these matters, it does appear that there could be some forum shopping and, yeah, you could inadvertently weaken some of the mechanisms if, uh, if states feel they can choose between one or the other. And uh, there's no, um, nuclear weapon states or nuclear possessor states in the, in the TPNW. There are some observers who are, if you excuse the expression umbrella states, uh, I think uh, I would consider that uh, Australia is uh, is protected by uh, uh, extended deterrence from, from the US and, and is an observer in the in the TPNW process, if I've answered that correctly. Ian, so I'm, I'm going to finally give you an opportunity to speak, to uh, remove the privilege of the fifth and, and put me straight. No,
4: no, no, no correction needs to be made. We had an observer, a, a member of parliament, who, who attended the first meeting of states parties of the TPNW, along with observers from many um, similarly placed states, including Norway, Sweden, Germany, Japan. Uh, It was a, a real urge to remain engaged with The international effort towards disarmament and the objective of a world without nuclear weapons is one that we are completely committed to. But I would say that Australia has been trying for many years to find realistic pathways towards disarmament. Uh, You might be familiar with the Canberra Commission of 25 years ago, the International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament from uh, just over 10 years ago, of which I was secretary. So I know there was a serious effort to engage experts from around the world and make progress. Perhaps more recently we've set up, uh, initially along with Japan, but now with 12 non-nuclear weapon states, the Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Initiative uh, and a lot of the language that we put together on risk reduction and transparencies and uh, other... Other steps towards a world without nuclear weapons were adopted as part of that consensus minus one outcome from the MPT Review Conference this year. So I I wouldn't give up on the prospects of real progress. It has just been frustratingly slow, and one expression of that frustration is, is the work that we've been speaking about.
1: Well, I think we're out of time, but I'm going to take away my summary that I think, although it's a difficult world with lots of challenges, there are some grains of hope. The importance of dialogue is fundamental, even if there's not immediate progress to dialogue matters. Uh, And I think uh, Australia, for all the sort of bashing it's been getting uh, recently, notably because of AUKUS, has actually been at the forefront of some of these
4: initiatives for, for some time. I, I, I feel the need to intervene one more time. Oh, part. no, sorry. Yes, last word to you, In I'm, I, I'm still talking. I, m- I must say that uh, from the Australian government's viewpoint, AUKUS is a contribution to global nuclear policy stability. We are setting the highest possible standards of non-proliferation, verification of our activities so that there will be a good precedent to, to keep everyone uh, up, to, up to that same standard.
1: There we go. That's a good point to end on today. Thank you very much for coming to ASPE. Thank Thank you for having us.
4: Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us. Have a happy and safe new year. And we'll see you back here in 2023.